turn in your Bibles, I'll read the text for Pastor Emilio's sermon. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 14 through 18. 2 Corinthians 12, 14 says, Here, for this third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I do not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? You may be seated. Let's pray one more time, okay? Let's pray. Father, um, I feel like I've learned so much, Lord, from the Apostle Paul over these months. Um, this, uh, this letter, Lord, is so personal to him, and uh, there's so much going on here, Lord, in the life of Paul. There's so much pastoral ministry and pastoral theology that's here, and there's so much goodness here for all of us to glean and to learn and to and to feast on as we look at the truths of your word. I pray that you would enlighten our minds, Lord. Give us understanding so that we can know your will, so that we can understand what your word declares, and so that we know what to apply to our lives. And we pray, Father, that you would send us your spirit now. Send us your spirit to illuminate our hearts, to give us greater understanding into your word, to convict us, to teach us, Father, to speak into our heart your word, and we pray your word of prophecy, your scripture, that it would have a profound effect on our hearts today. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, these, uh, these final sections of 2 Corinthians are becoming... Uh, uh, precious real estate for me. I feel like I'm being pushed off an edge closer and closer. <laughs> We're getting towards the end of the letter, and we've been in here since the founding of our church, and so this epistle will always have a very uh, special place in my heart. Uh, when I really think about 2 Corinthians, I think about the fact that Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is really a letter that has a ton of pastoral theology. I know that if somebody were to ask you, well, where do you go to get pastoral theology in the Bible? You would probably turn to 1st, 2nd uh, uh, Timothy and to Titus. But after looking at 2nd Corinthians, as several commentators have pointed out, the existential battles that Paul goes through as a pastor in this church and expressed in these letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but 2nd Corinthians in a very particular way just really shows us what I've entitled even for this sermon, the demands of pastoral ministry. The demands of pastoral ministry. Paul's words in this, pa in this whole passage really shows us the importance of the purity of the local church. Much of the, of the passage has to do with the subject of money. 
not only Paul's personal uh, independence and refusal even to take money from the church at this juncture, but even the misunderstandings that the church had about money, finances, generosity, all of those things, and in addition to that, even the way the false teachers have twisted Paul's words, twisted his motives, and twisted his example of financial propriety, all of that has to do with what Paul's talking about in this section. And on top of that, Paul, especially the way, you know, closer and closer as he's getting to ending this letter, the more and more he's calling for the church to cooperate with him and to get ready. Matter of fact, in uh, chapter 13, verse 9 of this letter, it speaks to that very same thing, that he, he's waiting for them to come into alignment with his desires so that they can be on the same track. But this letter really gives us a ton of lessons for us. And really, let me just speak to one thing. Because this passage has so much to do with the finances, uh, the financial dealings, we could say, of the church and Paul, I thought it may be important for us to really to understand what is a healthy church like? Because Corinth is not a healthy church. I don't know if you realize that yet, but if you read 1 Corinthians, if you read 2 Corinthians, you come to the conclusion that this is a very sick church. This is a very impure church. There's sin rampant. There's false theology rampant. There are false teachers on the loose. There are divisive brethren that are slandering Paul and tearing down his reputation. And then there's the whole issue of money. And you know how Christians get when you talk about money. But let alone in the context of Corinthians, money, I mean, you think money is a taboo subject today because of the abuses of false teachers and prosperity preaching and all of that. Paul has already been slandered as being financially shady by these false teachers. So it just begs the question, what does a healthy financial situation in the church look like? And so I thought I would pause just for a second to touch on that very thing, but you remember that Paul, he, he refuses financial support, and I would say he does that because of his missionary efforts in the church. In the first letter, he already told them, look, I'm entitled to this. I have the right to this, but I will forego that right for their sake, for the gospel's sake, for the, for the foundation and the security and the strength of the church. He will forego that right. You want to look at a healthy situation, look at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. I want to read a few of these verses, so you might want to look there. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. Here Paul is corresponding with a totally different church, a totally different situation, and one that we can say is probably much more pure, the Philippians. Uh, some have said that the Philippians were actually Paul's favorite church, if you can say that. I don't know about that because he just taught that he's consistent no matter where he goes. But, needless to say, this church is in a much more, uh, is in a much more uh, proper position, a proper posture, and has a much better relationship with Paul at this point. In verse 15, Paul says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the, manner, uh, in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. There came a point in time where only the Philippians supported Paul. He says, for even in Thessalonica, you sent, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. 
But if I have received anything in full, I have, a, have an abundance, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all of your needs according to, the, to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know what he's doing here in Philippians is the same thing that he teaches in Galatians chapter 6, another passage that I want to read here. But the principle there of giving and receiving, or we could even say in Paul's words in Galatia, sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping, that he knew that their financial support of Paul would redound to their spiritual well-being. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in your financial giving, that will redound to your spiritual well-being? A lot of people don't. Many people don't. They really don't think that when they drop their tithe in the box or their offering in the box, that that will have any spiritual benefit for them whatsoever. And so they neglect it and they, and they, don't, they don't do it and they rather live in rebellion to God than to be submitted to His Lordship. For the Apostle Paul, there was nothing more important. Notice, this is in the context of the local church, Galatia, Ephesians, Corinth, there is no financial venture, spiritually speaking, that the Christian is obligated to commit himself to than to the local church. And that's something that we as a church have to grasp. You know, if you go on the internet right now, there is a thousand and one ministries out there that are asking you for money. Give to this evangelism ministry. Give to this apologetics ministry. Give to this missionary ministry. Give to this parachurch organization. Or give to this seminary. We're building a new building and we need money for that. Give to this website because it you know, promotes theological resources. That is all well and fine. But for us right here, family, what's more important than anything is your financial connection to the church. The more I think about the church the more I begin to think of what Jesus said when he told Peter, I will build my church. Do you understand what the church is? The church is God's authoritative institution on planet earth. It's not the mission agency down the street. It is not the, it is not the homeless ministry down the street, the humanitarian ministry down the street. Christ has vested his authority only in one organism, it's called the church. That should grip us. That's got to land on us with a serious weight that when we're coming together here, folks, we are not playing church. Church is deadly serious. Paul tells the, 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 the Galatians in the same exact thing. The one who is taught the word is to share with all good, all good things with the one who teaches him. This is definitely a dose of practical theology, but I think it undergirds everything that's going on here in, Cor in Corinth. Don't think that because Paul chose to lay aside his financial privileges that that somehow means Paul's teaching Galatians and Paul's teaching in Corinthians are at odds with one another. No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, they harmonize perfectly. Paul is laying down his rights for a reason. He's laying down his rights for them because he's being accused. And he's already stated earlier in the context of this letter that he will not have his boasting taken away from by anybody. He doesn't want anybody to, to, to slander his reputation. 
by him all of a sudden now deciding to ask for money from the Corinthians for his personal needs. He does not. And so, folks, I just really, that's really a burden that's on my heart because your financial dealings in the church says so much about your spiritual maturity. The church that does not support its leaders is dysfunctional. The members of the church that don't give or don't tithe are immature. They are, I understand that there is providence and there, is, there are times where God himself will hinder you from giving and put you in a position where you just simply can't give. I understand all of that. But barring the providential working of God, his ordained means, his ordained pattern for our lives, folks, is that we be faithful in our church giving. I would hate for any of you to suffer because of your rebellion in that area of your life. So I want you to get real with God and to, and to evaluate husbands and wives, get together, families getting together, you yourself, if you're single, get, get together, in your, get with, your, you know, with the Lord. As Paul tells the Corinthians, give yourself to the Lord and then to the church in this area because it has great ramifications for your spiritual maturity and your spiritual growth. I don't know any mature Christians that don't give to the church. None. That's just a fact. And here, Paul is zealous to make sure that his financial dealings with the church are above par, always, not just his, but even those of his whole team in Corinth. And so what I want to look at here are two things that deal with this aspect of his dealings with the church and look at the demands that were laid on Paul and the pastoral ministry in general. And number one, it's this, the pastoral care of the church, the pastoral care of the church. And here we really see the heart of the Apostle Paul. So let's dive right in, verses 14 and 15. It says, here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. That's talking about money. He says he did not want to burden them by asking them for money. He says, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? You see, that really gets to the care, the heart of Paul's uh, uh, relationship with the church. This is what he's trying to get to. Things aren't right, and Paul's not right. When things aren't right in the church, he's not right with the church. He's not right in his heart. He probably can't sleep at night. Like he says, sleepless nights, his intense concern for the church. And this is just a minor example of that. So Paul returns now to talking about his travel plans. And I want to point out several things now about Paul's care. Number one, his plans. Paul's plans. He makes it clear that this is the third time that he's coming to them. This sort of, his relationship with the Corinthians is kind of like a drawn-out pastoral saga <laughs> of pleasure and pain. Okay? The first time he was there, according to Acts chapter 18, and according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he is there evangelistically. He's there to preach Christ crucified. He's there to, to, to leave them with the gospel and to make sure that their faith is, is, is grounded in the cross, grounded in the power of God. His second visit was disciplinary in nature. He talks about this all throughout this letter here. 
2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he speaks of that, of having to come to them with harsh words, with, with a harsh tone. And Paul was determined not simply to come to them, but to minister to them, to edify them. That is his goal in this third visit. He wants to build them up. Look at verse 19 right here in the next text. He says, all this time, you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for this purpose, for your upbuilding, beloved, for your upbuilding. That is the goal of pastoral ministry at the end of the day, building up the church, edifying the church, encouraging the church, making sure that the church is growing, that the church is, the church is maturing, that the church is becoming healthier and healthier and healthier. That is the point of it all. That's the point of it all. And Paul makes it clear that he wants to come to them now a third time and to bless them. And in order to do that, as he's planning here, he wants them to file in line with his apostolic authority. Moving away from the apostles was to move away from the gospel, period. Now, we can't say that today. You move away from me, that doesn't necessarily mean you move away from the gospel. But for the apostle Paul, as an apostle, with the authority of an apostle, in the tradition of the apostles, to move away from that is to move away from the gospel. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 9, he says, For we rejoice, 13, verse 9, we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. See, that is the goal. Holistic purity in the church. What the church could expect from Paul in the future visit is the same thing that they got from him in past visits, a consistency in his pastoral ministry. And we'll see that even more in the next two verses. Not just his ministry, but the, the ministry of his associates as well. But again, Paul plans to come to them and plans not to be a financial burden on the church. On the church. He has stated that over and over again. Not just his planning then, let's look at his heart, Paul's heart. He says, for I do not seek what is yours but you. This is the aim. This is the goal. This is the objective for pastoral ministry. Not what the church can do for you. <laughs> Sorry to use that old adage, but what you can do for the church. That is really the truth. It's not what the church can give you. It's not what you can get out of the church. How much money, how, much, how many material blessings you can receive from the church, how much popularity or fame or influence or power or authority over people's lives. That is not why you're in the church. That's not why you're in the ministry. That's not what pastoral ministry is about. That small little phrase, I don't seek what's yours but you. It doesn't get any more personal than that. I seek you. Because what he means by that is, I seek after your soul, as he's going to go on to say. I seek your betterment. I want to see you built up. I want to see you growing. He is in love with the people, not with the idea of ministry. He's in love with the people. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 11.2. He's already said this. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3. I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. 
But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. If I really care about you, I care about your mind, what's going on in your head, your theology, your thinking, your wisdom, your, your worldview, how you see things, how you interpret things, how you interpret the Bible. All of those things are just vastly, wildly important in pastoral ministry so that ultimately pastoral ministry has to do with sanctification. It has to do with making you more like Jesus. If you don't want to become more like Jesus, you may not want to be in a pure church, in a true church, in a, tr in a church that will admonish you, that will labor with you, that will uh, encourage you, confront you, rebuke you, correct you if you need to be corrected. Paul says to the Galatians, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Ladies, you've been in labor. You know a little bit about what that feels. Paul's saying that anguish is kind of like the anguish that I have for my church. I am in labor. I'm agonizing over this, that you look more like Christ that Jesus takes more shape in your life, that you reflect more of His person, more of His glory, more of His maturity, more of His mind, as we saw during the Lord's Supper, that you, take, you begin to think more like Jesus, that Jesus just becomes everything for you. I won't rest until you are intoxicated with Christ. That's what He's saying. And... He labored very hard to that end. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. Let me just read this to you. Colossians 1, 28. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. If we take this as a, as some, as a principle for our church, that means no one falls through the cracks. No one disappears for three weeks. And nobody knows what's going on in your life. You don't have your own personal private life that nobody knows about. We're in your life. We're in your grill. We're nosy, you know. We're involved. What's going on? You haven't been to church three weeks. Don't make that a standard, by the way, okay? Don't say, Pastor Million said three weeks. So, yeah, I'm good. It's only been two. Next is he gives us a metaphor to understand his heart. Look at the metaphor he gives us there. He says, for children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. That's right. Look over at your, your child. Look, especially, I would say, probably a younger child, right? They're in an infancy stage. They're not growing. They're not maturing. And so just like you would not expect your, your little children to be saving up in their piggy bank money for you, you are preparing to save up something for them. Help them with their college. Help them to buy their first car. Now, some of you are like, well, I didn't grow up like that. <laughs> you want a car, you go work for it, boy. <laughs> right? That's good. But, but don't, don't overwhelm his metaphor here. He's simply saying, I, like a parent, the church, like a child, I'm, out to, I'm, I'm looking out for you first. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about my burdens. Don't worry about my finances. First, my concern is, how are you doing in the gospel? That's number one. His metaphor is about his love. 
And that's the next thing, his love, the way that he loved this church. Look at on the basis of this metaphor, in light of this metaphor, verse 15, back in our text, verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. You see, they don't need to question or doubt. They don't need to wonder if Paul's love is actually uh, real. He actually uses a verb form of the word love, agapon, this participle here. It's, it's present and it's active, meaning it was an ongoing love. It, it was an unceasing love. It never ended. It was going on and on. Uh, circumstances, even the things they did to him, did not stop or clog up his love. His love was not static. It was vibrant. It was, it was organic. It was alive. And I want to show you his love in two ways. Number one, Paul's love is expressed through his sacrifice, through his sacrifice. That's why he's willing to forgo his privileges. He, is also, he, also, he also gladly, therefore, will lay down his life for them. Paul knows that his labors are for the enriching of their souls. That's what ministry is all about. Not so much the physical, material, and temporal blessings that you can get out of a ministry, the ministry is about doing people eternal good, eternal good, so that when your eyes meet my eyes on judgment day and we stand before the great judgment seat, I was just talking to my wife about having to give an account on that day, and I thought, well, I'll give an account on that day, but guess what? That day is going to be a big old reunion. We're going to be there. You're going to see me. I'm going to see you. I'll give an account, and so will you, but hopefully your life will have some manifestation of the good that was done to you in this place and hopefully through this preaching pastoral ministry demands that above all above all you care for the the spiritual quality of people's lives not the not the monetary quality of your life i can be just, just real honest with you i really don't care if you're rich poor in the middle that doesn't matter to me what matters to me is what is the spiritual quality of your life in the home in the marriage, at work, in your own personal devotional life. Spiritual sowing is eternal sowing. I am sowing, this is why I love being a pastor. Oh, I really feel so privileged and blessed and spoiled because I get to sow spiritual things that I believe will have an eternal reaping effect, good and bad. Therefore, Paul loves the church with a joy-filled sacrifice. I will most gladly spend. It's not enough to say, okay, I'll sacrifice for you there. But he says, I will gladly spend. I will gladly be expended for your souls. He uses psukon for this idea of getting to the soul of the person. I don't care about your outward appearance, your beauty, your fitness, you want to go to CrossFit? Fine. You want to go work out at the gym? Fine. You want to be a health nut? Okay. But what I really care about is making you a health nut with respect to your soul. That you care about the condition of your heart and your soul and your spiritual well-being. That's what I care about. And Paul uses two words here that both imply exhaustion. To spend means to run out means you've spent to the point where there's nothing left. 
to expend or to be expended means literally that you've gone to the point of exhaustion. You're worn out. You're worn out. When you get home after a long day of ministry, your head hits the pillow, you're exhausted. You're exhausted. That should be the life of a pastor, by the way. You should be exhausted after your preaching and preparation and ministering and praying and serving. You should be. Paul uses these words so that not only to express his labor, but also to express the fact that he's out to, to, to watch out for them. He's, he's, he's spending on them their behalf. He's investing in their spiritual prosperity. Not just his sacrifice, but also his sincerity. That's kind of the second half of this verse. Not only does he say, I'll be expended for your souls, and then look at the last phrase there, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? I like that because Paul is not just a preacher that gets all excited and says all kinds of words. Uh, He knows what he's saying. (laughs) He's calculated in his words. He's uh, and he's, he's blood earnest in his words. He's very honest. He's transparent. Man, what you see is what you get with Paul. Paul loves them not on the basis of some emotional thing, but he loves them in truth. And in order to love them in truth, he wants to love them to the degree that they understand that truth and that they realize that Christian love consists of mutual love. There is, a, there is a, a, a reciprocity. That's the big word I wanted to get right. There is a reciprocal nature to Christian love. I love you, but do you love me? That's what Paul's saying. I can be spent. I can go on. I can exhaust myself. I can love you to death. But am I to be loved any less? That's why he tells them earlier, open up your heart. I'm not, you're not restrained by us in your affections. Open up your heart. Don't be so guarded. Come to the church and be transparent. You know what I'm saying? There's enough fake people in the world. Be open. Be real. Pull people aside. Say, hey, man, I need prayer. (laughs) You understand what happened to me this week? You understand what's going on right now? I need prayer. I don't want to just sit there like everything's hunky-dory when it's not. He wants mutual, transparent Love. That's called loving someone in truth. Uh, He expects this sort of reflex of love. Romans chapter 1, verse 11 to 12, probably a classic verse on this. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by one another's faith, both yours and mine. That's right. I should be able to come here to this church and expect to be edified by you as much as I expect to edify you, hopefully. Pastoral care. And not only pastoral care, but my second point is this. Pastoral ministry also demands pastoral consistency. Look at verses 6 through 8. But be that as it may, I did not burden you with myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. We'll clarify that. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? 
I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Not only was Paul obligated to keep his word uh, and to care for the church himself, uh, he, was also, he also commended the integrity of his associates, Titus and this unnamed brother that he mentioned earlier in the letter for the care of the church. Paul's repeated use of irony here as well when he says, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. There's a lot attached to that. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of baggage in those words. There's a lot of, uh, you know what I'm saying, there's a lot of meaning behind those words. It was probably that the, the false teachers and the, some of the brothers in there that had sinned against him had foisted that idea on the church that what Paul was actually doing was that he, in a very crafty, deceitful way, he was acting as if he was not going to take financial uh, 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 you know, support, but then once his emissaries came, once his representatives came, his associates, Titus and the brother, once they came, that they would throw some financial burden upon them. So you imagine being Titus and being this brother arriving in Corinth? They got their guard up. Oh, you're here to really tell us what you're here for, what Paul's intention, what his motivation really is, and it's not. He says it. He repeats it emphatically. Certainly, I have not taken advantage of you uh, through any, through the agency of any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? No, he did not. No, he did not take advantage of them at all. Paul's fellow workers were trustworthy, and that's why he sent them. Matter of fact, Paul takes complete responsibility for those connected to him. So the ministry is so important, you guys. That's why it's so critical in the ministry who does what. Because ultimately, even as Paul tells Timothy, you know, when you lay your hands on somebody hastily, you have the potential, there is the potential for disaster. And so you got to be very careful who you stamp your hand, who you put your stamp of approval upon. Because you're connected to that minister. I know that what Pastor Chris does will reflect my ministry. So watch out, buddy. We're connected to one another. We're indissoluble. What he does will reflect on me. What I do will reflect on him. That's the way ministry works. So you better have a good ministry team. These guys that Paul's sending to Corinth, especially dealing with the thorny issue of finances, these dudes better be above reproach. They better, be, they better walk circumspect. They better be trustworthy. They better be men that he can fully trust. And I think he did. He takes complete ownership. Look, he urged Timothy. He sent the brother with him. It's his doing. He's at the back of that. And so Paul says, look, what we demonstrated was pastoral consistency. When they arrived, what you found with this, these men were the same. They were men of repute. They were honorable. They were faithful. They were trustworthy leaders. Even as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, it is first required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's number one. Here's a small ministry for you to do. Let's see if you can do it faithfully. After you've done that, then we'll see if greater things can be entrusted to you. But if you don't, if you're not faithful with little things, 
Why should God make you rule over much? That's the way the ministry works. That's the dynamic. These men were tested, tried, proven. Chapter 8, verses 16 to 24 shows us a little bit more about the character of Paul's partners. He says here that these guys were a mere image of his own practice and his own passion. Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Now, that reference there to the spirit, contrary, I believe, to what some commentators would suggest, because the word there is simply uh, uh, pneumati, which could be in the spirit, uh, or by the spirit, or with the spirit. I don't think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I think this is just a reference to their disposition, to their disposition. The same dynamic can be found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. It says, they conducted themselves in the same spirit, and they walked in the same steps. In other words, there is one idea controlling both of these phrases. Same spirit, same steps, and that's the word conduct. Conduct. Peripateo. It means literally to walk. To walk. The manner of their walk, the manner of their conduct, their lifestyle, their way of life, their outlook on things was the same as ours in terms of ministry. Oh, they could have differed. Surely they differed. They didn't have the exact exegetical mind. I'm sure they differed on certain exegetical fine points. Maybe they differed in terms of their ability. Maybe Paul was smarter than they were. Maybe he was more gifted. Maybe Titus had a gift that Paul didn't have. Maybe, you know, they might have differed in these personalities or these idiosyncrasies, but guess what, folks? In the man, as far as their manner of life and their commitment to the church, they were equal in their passion for that. Paul could trust these guys for two unifying reasons. Let's look at these phrases a little bit closer. Number one, he can trust them because they were like-minded, having the same passion, the same passion. Like-minded ministers, therefore, must have the same ecclesiastical passion. And uh, I think that's what that phrase, the same spirit, is all about. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, a very familiar verse for us, but I think a very relevant and very pertinent verse, okay? Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, all the way to 22, to see sort of a parallel idea He says, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Talking about Timothy, Paul. Paul is talking about his young protege, Timothy. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. You see that? That kindred spirit, there's nothing more beautiful than that in the ministry than to have somebody with you of kindred spirit, somebody that's on board, somebody that's unifying, not somebody that's constantly interjecting divisive tones and divisive ideas. I have been around enough divisive brothers, okay, seeking uh, uh, church leadership that I can spot them a mile away. They have their own agenda. They're on their own timeline. They have their own ideas to the point that they will force those ideas. They don't have a yielding spirit, a cooperative spirit. 
It's uh, very important. I could just go on and on about that. The second thing is not only did they have the same passion, but they also had the same practice. Like-minded ministers, therefore, have to have the same, and I chose the word practice for a very interesting word. He says they have the same steps. Is that what you have in your translation? The same steps. Matter of fact, the word here, ichnos, just literally means footprint, like a footprint that you leave in the sand. It's like Paul is saying, if I were to pick up my footprint, if I were to pick up my foot, Titus could put his foot right in. No difference. We walk in the same manner, in the same steps. But when you get actually to the meaning of this word, I thought it very remarkable to find that actually this word for steps or footprints, this word is only used two other times in the whole New Testament. Just two more times. One time it's used of Abraham, the other time it's used of Jesus, and both of them have to do with moral example. Abraham is our example of faith, Romans chapter 4, verse 12, justifying faith. Jesus, our example of suffering, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He is our example. Why? So that you can follow in his footprints. So there is biblical justification for that plaque on people's walls. The picture is a powerful anthropological metaphor for unity among the leaders of God's church, body and soul, steps and their passion, their spirit, their souls. If Paul had his associates represent, uh, represent a physical body, the whole person was united in the cause of the gospel. The whole package the result among the Corinthians was a perfect pastoral consistency that remained blameless and above reproach. You see what I'm saying? This letter has everything to do with pastoral ministry. I'll use my good knee. I hope that you've been enjoying 2 Corinthians as much as I have because there's so much here for our instruction, brothers and sisters, but that's what we can expect. That's what, that's, what, that's what is demanded of a, of, a, of a good pastoral ministry. And that's what, if nothing else, that's what you could pray for me and pray for Chris right here. These are the prayers. This, you know, when you pray for me next time, you pray for me, pray with an open Bible and pray these things for me and for Chris. Pray that we would be always united, one spirit, one, that we would walk in each other's steps at work, that we, would, that we would be united of one passion, the gospel, that's it, the purity of the church, and that all, everything else would be just secondary to that. And uh, I think with that we can have a healthy biblical church. I hope you see also the importance of the relationship a church and its leaders ha has to have. Nothing breaks my heart more than when people come in here visiting our church and they tell me of the horrific, the horror stories that they're coming from, from other churches, the way they were treated or the way that they had treated others. So therefore, pastoral ministry demands two things according to this text. Pastoral care, you have to care for the church, love the church, be involved with the church, 
nurture the church, put the church first, and a pastoral consistency. Your ministry team has to consist of those people that share the same passion and that are willing to walk in the same steps as you walk for the glory of Christ and for the good of His church. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, um, we just simply thank You for Your Word. Thank You that we have it. Thank You that we are so blessed to have such a sufficient uh, revelation that Your Word encompasses so many things that we can learn from. And so, God, I pray, Lord, use our church. Unite our church for the gospel so that through our church, people would come into Christ that through our church, the gospel would not be weakened through division. The effectiveness of our church would not be weakened through any sort of selfish ambition. But Lord, help us all collectively, as much as is possible, to do what Paul says, Lord, to have the same mind, to be of the same spirit, so that we can be most effective for the gospel and for the kingdom. Save, Lord. Save souls through our church. Use us to bring in the weary, the, seer, the sinner, the beaten, downtrodden person that has no hope, that has no future, that has nothing. We pray that you would use us continually, evangelistically. I pray that the evangelism in our church would just grow, that it would deepen and widen, that it would become multifaceted, that evangelism would have a thousand different types of expressions in our church. All for your glory, Lord. We thank you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.